0: hell in the rock the scores nba podcast i'm joe wolfond and i'm joined for this season ending edition of the podcast by my co-host joseph casharo Cash, how you doing man
1: surviving you know in uh what song was it when kanye says how's yay doing i'm surviving it's kind of it's kind of how i feel right now like, i'm surviving uh this this season was a grind i mean by no means uh do we do either of us take our jobs for granted and you know lots of people uh going through real struggles right now but yeah from a work perspective i think you'd agree that this season was a grind and um yeah it's uh it's interesting like we're sitting here on what is it october 11th you know by the time people listen to this it'll probably be october 12th and you know if you think about it usually this would be like we're doing like our season preview pod you know for the 2020 21 season and instead we're sitting here um recapping the end of a season that took 12 months to complete you know ends up in a fanless disney world bubble uh, in the middle of a global pandemic in a season where you know the basketball world lost kobe bryant man like like, in a season where even the bubble itself was halted for a few days while players grappled with how best to, to use their voices in the fight for racial justice like it's uh obviously you know some of those things are much more important than just the game of basketball for sure I don't want to trivialize any of that stuff but just in general like a lot went into this season and it was uh it was you know fun to cover at times for sure there's a little bit of relief though that it's over um and, and and you know with that too it's like not like relief it's over and it went out with a dud although the final score was a dud but like we got you know another great LeBron playoff run and finals performance we got Jimmy Butler doing what he did in the finals. We got, a, honestly, a great bubble in general between the end of their season and then the playoffs. And so, yeah, I think happy it's over, but very appreciative of what we got for these last two, three months, however long it's been that the bubble's been going. Yeah,
0: it was certainly the longest NBA season in history. It was probably the strangest NBA season in history, one of the most eventful. And like you said, it was definitely a grind at points. You know we've been documenting it the whole way, in audio form and in print. Cash, I know you want your respect, and I want my damn respect too. So I think there are any number of places that we can start. Let's start without man. this season wrapped up. But yeah, maybe we can begin at the end, which is LeBron James on the podium accepting his fourth Finals MVP award after another masterful performance. and in a closeout game. He was absolutely everywhere. He was unbelievable defensively. He was getting the Lakers out in transition at every opportunity, getting to the rim at will. I mean, the Lakers put this one away in the second quarter, essentially by denying the Heat any opportunity to score in the paint and then completely dominating the paint themselves at the other end. And I think, look, the Heat, to me, just... Kind of plainly ran out of gas, but they ran out of gas because I think the Lakers kind of wore them out uh, over the previous five games and at the beginning of this game and just never really gave them a sliver of daylight or a reason to believe that they could actually win this one. So let's talk about LeBron. I mean, we can obviously zoom out if you want to and look at this from a sort of big picture legacy perspective. Do you, does this stuff interest you? Like, do you care about, you know, comparing LeBron to Jordan or, you know, every step of the way, taking every accolade, every performance as some sort of addition to his resume that is going to help him stack up against MJ? Or are you just at this point in the mode of wanting to appreciate LeBron for a LeBron?
1: Yeah, look, for me personally, you know, I'm about appreciating LeBron's greatness and, uh, appreciating lebron's greatness at every opportunity you know not just in the finals like game 61 of the regular season in february or march we should be le- appreciating lebron james's greatness because we don't know how much longer we'll get this from him although i say that in six years from now we might be talking about lebron winning another finals mvp while averaging a triple double in the fight like it's it's unbelievable man he uh He averaged 29.8 points, 11.8 rebounds, and 8.5 assists on 64.7% true shooting in this series. Like, think about those numbers, man, in the NBA finals to win another title. And that was in a series where I mentioned a couple times on this show throughout the series that even though I think he was going to be finals MVP, I also didn't feel like he had ever hit top gear in the series. And then we're sitting here at the end of it talking about how we basically average like 30, 12 and nine on 64% true shooting. Like this guy is unreal. And, you know, over the last decade and a half plus, we've run out of words to describe what we're witnessing. It's um, it's something else, man. Yeah. Anyway, to, to answer your question for me personally, I'm about appreciating LeBron regardless, but it does interest me how I don't care how others perceive him that doesn't take away like how much I can appreciate him but I, it does interest me seeing how the conversation has changed and how the perception of his legacy has changed right because you know while there's always going to be like the most fervent of the Jordan truthers that are never going to accept that LeBron is very much in the conversation which he is by the way I do think you've seen a lot of LeBron doubters in general over the last few years like slowly realize and like we can like watch them come to that realization in real time that like, ah, he is that good. I see what people have been talking about now for like, you can see the doubters starting to go that way. Right. And maybe it's because so many of those doubters were Lakers fans, right? Because, you know, not to bring Kobe into the argument, but as we know, a lot of, a lot of the biggest LeBron doubters were the Kobe truthers, right? Who never wanted to give LeBron his due flowers. And now that he's winning it for the Lakers i think those people have come around so yeah i'd say other than like the real hardcore jordan truthers i don't really think there's anyone left out there that doesn't realize he's at worst the second best player of all time like i
0: what used to be chicago I
1: heard it here first lebron's going to the bulls
0: i mean like, that's how it's got to happen right like if if uh He's slowly kind of one by one, turning the fan bases that have doubted him the longest into true believers. Then maybe this ends with him going to the bulls and finally converting all those MJ truthers into LeBron stands at the end of the day.
1: Billy Donovan was onto something. Billy Donovan knows something. Really um,
0: yeah. Light years ahead. Yeah. Um, anyway, sorry, I interrupted you, but I'm, I'm going to let you finish that thought.
1: Yeah, no, I I mean, I pretty much was on the thought. It's just, yeah. Like I think, I think you can appreciate what lebron's doing and not care about what other people think and yet still be at least interested in seeing how the conversation around his legacy has evolved over the years because it definitely has evolved and like i said i think for the most part people pretty unanimously understand that he's one of the two best players ever i think smart basketball people at least are open to the possibility that he might be the best ever especially now when you consider the longevity like you had a great tweet at the end of tonight too when you mentioned like there's only what three active players from the 2003 draft and it's LeBron and uh, who are the other two? Melo and Corver, Right. And you look at what Melo and Corver are at this point in their careers, as you noted in your tweet, uh, James Jones is an effing GM already. Luke Walton is how many years into coaching? Like, those guys are from that class. And as I noted earlier in this playoff run, like look at the way, you know, like I was going to say we, although not you, because you don't heap praise on uh, Rajon Rondo, but look at the way, Seriously, though, look at the way like people, you know, will heap praise on a guy like Rondo or Dwight or one of those types of players for it's like, you know, at this stage of his career to even even be a positive contributor, like after a tough season or whatever in the finals or in the playoffs, it's such a great story. And it's like LeBron's been in the league longer than those guys and he's older than them. And he's not just a positive contributor. He's still playing at a level that for anyone else would be an absolute career year, even for superstars. What LeBron James did this season would be like a career year. And uh, he's doing it at age 35, season 17, 59,000 minutes under his belt. I just, we, we, we bring up the same numbers over and over again, but they'll never get less mind-bending to me.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's year 17 with 260 playoff games tacked on top, which is, you know, more than three regular seasons worth of games on top of those 17 regular seasons that he's played. Guy has been to the finals in nine of the last 10 years, Won four chips and finals MVP every time. Yeah, I mean, it's it, like it, it's one thing to just continue being in the league that long and have your body hold up to that level of attrition and be able to like contribute after 17 years in the league and after you've played. What did you say? It was like 59,000. Yeah, I between think, the regular the season, season and, and the playoffs, he's
1: over 59,000 minutes.
0: So, yeah, I mean, it's one thing for your body just to hold up for that long and with that many miles on your odometer. But to do that and continue to be the best player in the world and essentially leave no doubt about it. I mean, I think what was really clarifying, and this is a no way a knock on Jimmy Butler, who, like I've said, had a legacy making playoff run and a legacy cementing finals performance. He was ridiculous. And. To see him just completely sputter to the finish line and run out of gas in this last game after leaving it all out there in game five, I mean, full credit to him, but LeBron essentially left it all out there in game five, too. Didn't play 47 minutes, played 42 minutes, and was absolutely going balls to the wall, had an equally, if not more impressive performance in that game, and And Jimmy Butler comes out in game six looking like a shell of himself. And LeBron is every bit as physically imposing and dominant as he ever was. And I think that just sort of frames, I think, the physical challenge of what it is to try and keep up with this guy and and what separates him from his peers is that physically, athletically, he is
1: just a different breed. He's never missed a playoff game, man. Like, I know that's like, that doesn't sound that crazy, you know, your first time hearing it because you're like, yeah, most stars play every playoff game or like, but to do it as long as he's done it, to go as deep in the playoffs as he goes every year, he's in the playoffs and to not once have missed a single game. When you see how other stars can get banged up over the course of playoff run, like it's remarkable. And I can't even remember if I did mention this at some point over the, uh, you know, on the podcast at some point over the playoff run. But I think the most telling stat to me with the whole Jordan thing and whether he's in the conversation and and why I think he absolutely is, not just for this reason, but a big part is, like everyone talks about the finals record, right? Which is now four and six and Jordan went six at all and whatever. LeBron James has now played, so he's played more playoff games than anyone ever, okay? He's played more playoff games than 15 franchises, including the Heat, if you can believe that. He's played 81 more playoff games than Michael Jordan. So the sample size is much, much larger. And, you know, if anyone here is even remotely a baseball fan, you'll know that when the sample size gets stretched out like that, it's a lot harder to maintain excellence, right? There's a reason why in baseball, even the best teams aren't running like 750 winning percentages, you know, the way teams in the NBA do. There's other reasons too, because baseball is much more of a team sport. But in general, over the course of say 162 games, you're not putting together a 75, 80% winning percentage. Like you could maybe over 82 games. All of that, leading up to the fact that LeBron has played 81 more playoff games than Michael Jordan, and has a better winning percentage in the playoffs than Michael Jordan. That's not saying he's better than him. like I I don't know I I basically consider them one A one B but I, I I'm I'm of the opinion LeBron's the most complete basketball player to ever walk the earth. But like even if you don't think he's in the conversation with Jordan and you're holding the Finals record against him, like how do you? How do you confront that dilemma? Like, if if the only thing you're using against them is playoff failures, well, like, I just told you something that is very real. He's won at a higher clip in the playoffs than Michael Jordan, despite playing 81 more playoff games than Michael Jordan. Think about that. Yeah, I mean, look, for the, for the people who,
0: and I don't really have an opinion on this or not, to be honest, I don't particularly care. I do think it's probably just a generational thing. Like I watched Michael Jordan at the tail end of his prime essentially. And I've watched LeBron's entire career. It's not really for me to say, you know, and I think for the people who are around and watching the NBA during Michael Jordan's prime, I don't think they're necessarily going to be swayed by numbers like that. Like I I think when you talk about the greatest of all time, more than just statistics or objective facts, it's just about feeling right. And I think for a lot of people, the feeling that Michael Jordan elicited, the sense of inevitability that he inspired is something that, you know, for them and, and it's quite possibly true that like no other player has ever really uh, conjured that same kind of feeling. And, I think the the interesting question, like the, the, the question that I would have and what I would ask is like, okay, if LeBron gets to six rings, like if he wins two more without losing in the finals, so he's six and six in the finals. So he's won as many rings as Jordan, but he's gotten to the finals six additional times and lost. Is it still fair to hold that finals record against him?
1: No, it's you know, absolutely but, not. But those people will because they don't understand like math and the way winning works. That's someone I can't remember who it was, but someone brought this up on Twitter tonight too. And they they sarcastically said like Jimmy Butler had this awe-inspiring playoff run and, you know, made himself a legend based on what he did in this playoff run and specifically in the finals. But, oh, he ended up, like, he lost in the finals. He went 0-1, like, he's now 0-1 in the finals. So, I guess it actually would have been better for his playoff legacy had he not made the finals. Because then you couldn't say he lost his only finals, right? Like, that, like that's how stupid this argument is. That you're essentially holding it against LeBron. That he has, at times, dragged some flawed teams. And I know, look, 20, 2011 is what it is, okay? That, that sure is a stain on the legacy if you're talking about comparing it to Jordan. I get it. But other than that, you can't have watched those finals and come out of them thinking, like, oh, LeBron dropped the ball or LeBron didn't get it done. You know, it's just. But to your point, there's probably no reasoning with anyone who thinks that because the fact that they think that in the first place indicates that they're not coming at this argument from a place of reason.
0: Yeah, but I don't know. I I think it's it's going to be an emotional thing for a lot of people and people are going to remember how a player made them feel. And I mean, for me, like LeBron is the uh, seminal player of my lifetime and and my generation, I think of basketball watchers, undoubtedly LeBron is that player, but every generation I think is going to have that player. And I'm I'm sure there'll be a player, you know, whether it's Luca or, Zion, you know, in the next generation who makes people feel those same things. And, that you know, that that generation will probably insist that their guy is the greatest of all time and there will be no reasoning with us. So we'll be able to tell everybody that we watched LeBron in his prime and we got to see his entire career play out and appreciate it. And it'll just be impossible for us to compare anything that comes after to what we've witnessed. but.
1: You know why it actually um, will be impossible, though. For like, while while I will be right when we make those arguments, because no one is going to do what LeBron James is doing this late into his career, and no superstar is going to play 260 playoff games again and win 66 plus percent of those. Like, you
0: no, know, probably, but I think. Look, I mean, the way that modern sports medicine has changed players' careers. And the extent to which longevity has changed in sports, like, I don't think it's totally out of the realm of possibility that that does happen, you know, probably not for Zion, but maybe for Luca. you know, who, like, just based on the way that he plays, like, his style is not super high impact. So I think it's entirely possible that he has an incredibly long and successful career. But this is why like, I don't like to get bogged down in this kind of stuff because I just think it, it distracts from just appreciating what LeBron has done and who he is. But look, I'll just say after last year with the kind of disaster that that Lakers season was, the injury that he suffered, how frankly appallingly bad he was defensively. He gave minimal effort at that end of the floor the entire season. And that was carryover from the last couple of years in Cleveland too, where throughout the regular season, he cranked it up in the playoffs, but it it seemed like his days of being a dominant, imposing defender were over. And I just kind of thought like, I still had immense respect for him as a player, you know, still considered him easily, you know, one of the top three players in the game. But I I didn't necessarily think that he was just going to reestablish himself as clearly the best player in the league and despite how promising I thought the partnership with Anthony Davis was and we should talk about Anthony Davis at some point because he was also unbelievable in game six and the finals as a whole despite all that like I I definitely didn't see this happening you know I mean I know you did you picked the Lakers to win the championship good on you uh your takes were better than mine this season you believed in the heat when I did not uh and, and I thought the Lakers would be really good and I thought they would get to the conference finals but like I I saw it more as like LeBron was just part of this cohort, you know, this group of very, very good players, not as sort of number one with the bullet the way that he'd been in past years. And so for him to have just come out and reestablished himself as that guy uh, and, and to show no signs whatsoever of slowing down is, I hesitate to use this word, but it's miraculous,
1: man. Uh, it's unbelievable, man. But uh, on that note, I mean, you mentioned Anthony Davis. You started by talking about the Lakers' ability to take away the paint uh, on one end and dominate it on the other end in the championship clinching game six. And the biggest reason for that was the biggest guy on the court for the Lakers, and that was Anthony Davis. You know, I I was pretty hard on him for that game three stinker he put up when, you know, some of his old flaws kind of came back to bite him in that game and his inability or like discomfort dealing with double teams or not even double teams, but just like extra defensive attention. But I mean, other than that one misstep, he was just about flawless in this series Um, on both ends of the court. I thought, you know, not that we didn't already know how versatile a defender he was, but his, his defensive impact and his defensive versatility just blew me away. Like basically from start to finish in this series, man. I mean, you know, whether it's shutting down Jimmy Butler in game four which, you know, maybe that has more to do with Jimmy being gassed after the Game 3 performance, but still. Like, Anthony Davis did a hell of a job on an elite wing scorer one game. Does a hell of a job on a star big man and Bam the next. The whole time being at the kind of center of what the Lakers do as a team defensively. You know, end of Game 4, he's, he's re- recovering to Duncan Robinson and taking away his airspace and not even letting him get a 3-point attempt off because of his like length, his defensive presence of mind, and then coming back down the other end and hitting the three point dagger, you know to seal Game Four uh, again in this game in Game Six, just completely dominated the defensive paint, like the ground he covers, his length, the the versatility of the like one on one assignments he can take on. It uh, it it doesn't make sense sometimes, man. Like watching how good this guy is defensively. And there were moments.
0: In this series, when he looked like the best player in the world, you know, like games one and two, some of the best basketball I've ever seen from a big man. And I don't even necessarily want to call him a big man because that puts him in in a certain kind of box. that I don't think he actually fits in like he plays closer, I think, to a wing in like a six foot 11 body than he does a big most of the time. And I think some of that you could say was maybe unsustainable because of just the way that he shot the ball. Like, I think he shot, what, like 47% from three in this series. And he was absolutely cooking from mid-range as well. Like, I I think that was maybe stuff that was like a little bit above his head. But outside of that, this is all stuff that is well within his purview and that I think we're going to see him continue to do for the next five, six years. And I think, you know, obviously – maybe the lesson from the Anthony Davis side of things is winning really does solve everything, right? Like you remember Anthony Davis' Q rating was in the toilet after last season. He sabotages the Pelican season asking for a trade, you know, midway through, even though he had a year and a half left on his contract winds up, you know, creating a situation where not only does he basically just sit out half the season because there's no longer any reason for the Pelicans to play him. But it completely tanked the Lakers season because, you know, every single role player, essentially every young player on that team knew that they were expendable and that LeBron was trying to get them traded for Anthony Davis. There's that shot of LeBron sitting at the end of the Lakers bench, like five or six seats clear of any other player on his team. So that happened and it was a whole mess. And then, you know, AD shows up on the last game of the regular season wearing a t-shirt that says that's all folks. And I, you know, I, I don't think that I, I don't know how many people's opinions about what Anthony Davis did or his character or whatever the criticisms of him were. I don't know how many people's minds have actually been changed about that, but I think in a lot of ways, like what Anthony Davis did has been vindicated because a lot of people are demonstrating a far greater appreciation for his game than they were last year or in previous years. And then they would have been if he'd been a Pelican this year and, you know, they lost in the first or second round.
1: Look, I mean, for me, you know, I I spent some time this season as recently as last week, you know, talking about whether as good as Anthony Davis is, whether he's the kind of guy that can be like the number one on a championship team. And what I say now at the end of the series is like, squabble all you want about whether he's a one a one b a two whatever here are the facts okay (laughs) anthony davis just had a postseason not a finals a postseason where first of all just like the regular season he was the lakers leading scorer in the playoffs uh he over 21 playoff games averaged 27.7 points on 57 38 83 shooting to go along with 9.7 rebounds 3.5 assists 1.4 blocks and 1.2 steals. So, whether you want to call him a 1B or a 2, he just had one of the best championship runs for a 1B or a number two that we'll ever see. He's been the best player on, you know, like a little better than middling Pelicans team that made the second round. And he's been, again, one of the best 1Bs or 2s ever on a team that just won a championship. And as I told you off the air last week, uh, even though it blew my mind, that out of 914 players in NBA history that have played at least 30 playoff games, Anthony Davis is third in per game scoring. Now, that obviously, like, you know, it doesn't mean that he's one of the three best playoff performers ever, but what it does mean is that he's gotten the job done at least on an individual level in the playoffs. And it's hard to win in the NBA, even for stars, and especially for you know, maybe bigs or guys who don't dominate the ball as much. He partnered with LeBron James and he got it done when the lights were the brightest on the biggest stage. And um, there's nothing I or anyone else can or should take away from him. All the power to him.
0: Yeah, I mean, do you worry at all that for other players who might be in a similar situation to the one that Anthony Davis was in, are going to learn the wrong lessons, or I mean, maybe they're not the wrong lessons, but are going to just follow that same blueprint, you know, whether that involves signing with Clutch or not, just trying to essentially make power moves and control their own destiny while they're still under contract with their teams for multiple years. I mean, let's take, look, Carl Anthony Towns is not at the level that Anthony Davis was at last year. Let's be clear about that. He's not close, but... You know, let's say Carl Anthony Towns with two years left on his deal, he sees what Anthony Davis just did and he decides, you know, forget my contract situation, I'm forcing my way out to a championship contender. Is, Is
1: that where you see this going? I don't necessarily think that, you know, Anthony Davis's success as a Laker will push more guys to do that. But I don't know, could one more guy do that now than would have done it? A few months ago maybe you know and whether it's towns or someone else though the only thing i'd say to that is i hope whoever does that you know first of all all the power to them if they if they want to control their own destiny and you know try to maneuver their way to the the market they want or the teammates they want whatever if, if they can do it all the power to them but what i would caution is that there also needs to be somewhat of an ego check too right like as much as i just rattled off all those numbers about ad and it said it doesn't matter whether he's a one or one b or a two at the end of the day, he joined LeBron James' team, you know, and won a championship because he partnered with LeBron James and helped LeBron get it done. But still, that, that's the main reason he won a championship. So if you're, whether it's Carl Anthony Towns or I don't know, Bradley Beal, like, I don't know, throw out whoever you want to throw out there, especially for the bigs who maybe don't dominate the ball the way some others do. Like it, if you want to join the type of ball dominant player that gives you the best chance to win there needs to be a bit of ego checking at the door and anthony davis you know i'm sure the fact that it was lebron he was dealing with made it a lot easier and the fact they have this big brother little brother relationship so they say and they're both clutch guys and that all makes it easier but if it does push someone else to do the same thing i hope that player realizes that it's not as easy as just showing up in the new market the glam the more glamorous market with the better teammates and coasting to a championship like there needs to be some sacrifices along the way too
0: I guess I just wonder have we gone too far in terms of the way that we value change. That's a crazy thing to say, but like in terms of the way that we value championships, you know, compared to guys who haven't won it and and the way that that burnishes a player's legacy or just changes their perception around the league. I mean I think you know there's an interesting counterfactual or an alternate universe in which Durant stays with OKC and, you know, plays essentially the exact same level of basketball that he played in Golden State, but doesn't win a championship. I mean, is he viewed differently as a player than he is now? Like he won two titles and two finals MVPs and, you know, would he be any lesser player if he just continued playing in OKC and maybe made the finals again but lost or lost a couple of times again in the conference finals but was clearly like the second best player in the league as he, you know, outside of this year when he didn't play, essentially was for the last half decade at least?
1: I don't know. I mean, that's an... Yeah, I, I think he would be viewed differently for sure. Not even that I think... I don't think he'd be viewed as lesser than, but I think people would speak of his legacy as an incomplete one because for the most part players of that caliber especially when you're talking like the KD type caliber those guys win championships like it's pretty rare like there there have been great players throughout history whether you want to talk about Charles Barkley or Steve Nash like hall of fame mvp caliber players who haven't won titles when you're talking like the KD level there's not too many of those guys i don't think that that haven't won titles so yeah i think his legacy would have been looked at as incomplete in terms of your question about like whether we've gone too far and almost overvaluing it. No, I don't because, you know, I think at the end of the day, that's the goal, right? Yes, there are other things that factor into it. These guys are making, you know, livelihoods and setting themselves up for generational wealth. Yeah, like all that goes into it. But once they get on the court, once the game starts, they want to win. And we should place immense value on winning championships. Having said that, where I think we over, or not we, but in general, where I think people overvalue championships is when they're maybe comparing players or like talking about, you know, and Nash is a good example, right? Like to me, like Steve Nash's career doesn't mean less to me because he didn't win a championship. Would it have been great if he had won one? Of course. But like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like we should value it to the extreme, but at the same time, we shouldn't degrade guys who couldn't get over the hump because you know, mathematically, you're probably not winning a championship. Like one in 30 teams wins it every year. And right. in the NBA, especially the same teams tend to dominate, you know, in clusters of years and the half decades or so. So I don't think it's a benchmark, like a player's need to pass to be considered like certain caliber. But at the same time, I also don't think we should shy away from the fact that these guys play to win. Um, and while mathematically it's very tough to win, a championship it's still the measuring stick for pro sports
0: yeah i think maybe like it would be good if we could kind of reframe those conversations to focus on okay how many championships did you win when you were the best player on the team right you know and so
1: anthony davis but, is at know, zero
0: <laughs> no and like look that it, that championship still matters he was of course you know the, the second best player and like you know 1b to lebron's 1a like that is absolutely you know not like riding lebron's coattails to a championship but i do think you know you could get into people love to talk about kobe's five rings but i think you know he was the best player on the lakers for two of them
1: i'd say and once I man because like in one of those years i thought Powell should have won finals mvp
0: yeah t- 2010 well but like was was pow the best player on that team overall right like, he might have been the best no. player in the finals yeah. year. but i think i think kobe was Probably still the best player on that team. But, you know, so if if somebody wants to hold up Kobe's five rings against LeBron's four, then I think I would counter by saying, well, like, LeBron has four rings in which he was the best player on his team, and Kobe has two such rings. Like, I think just adding in context and and differentiating it in that way would be helpful. Not that I think that's actually going to happen, because nuance tends to get shoved out of conversations like this, but...
1: Look, I just think it's really tough to win in the NBA, and even for... Look, even for LeBron James, who we spent the first half of this podcast talking about how he's, you know, undoubtedly one of the two best players of all time, he's not able to win it alone. Jordan had Scottie Friggin Pippen, who was really, really good. If you know you know your basketball from the 90s. Like you don't win championships alone. Even in the NBA, even in the league and the sport where one dominant talent can impact the game like no other league or sport, you still can't win alone so yes we should use championships um we should value championships the way we do because that's what everyone's playing for but we also shouldn't degrade guys who maybe could never get over the hump and win one because there is so much context that goes into a championship journey or a career whatever the case may be and to just say well a guy didn't win one and so therefore he can never be this caliber of player i think is is just such lazy analysis What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone covers, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, download The Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Now back to the show.
0: So speaking of which, I mean, the the Miami Heat obviously end up coming up short. But I think this was just like an incredible run that deserves to be memorialized. And I kind of think they will go down, I think, as one of the more memorable and inspiring non-champions that we've seen in recent history. Because, you know, it's kind of all that stuff that we were talking about, about what you remember, like how you remember certain players and teams so often is just based on what they made you feel. And I think, you know, from where I sit, at least, this was like one of the more unexpected finals teams in the last little while. I felt like, just look at like where they were at coming into the season. And what was expected of them. I mean, again, I'll only speak for myself here. I don't want to make like a grand proclamation about what the general NBA watching public felt about this team. But for me, I remember saying at the start of the season that I was kind of disappointed in Jimmy Butler, this guy who talked about how all he cared about was winning, you know, turning his back on what I thought was a championship contender in Philadelphia to go sign with like a middling Miami Heat team. And I remember thinking that that told me that, okay, maybe Jimmy Butler wants to win, but he really only wants to win on his own terms. I didn't expect this team to do a whole heck of a lot. And I expected them, frankly, to lose in the second round of the playoffs. But they just continually showed, I think, a whole lot of grit, intelligence, connectedness, and skill that was pretty inspiring. And, you know, for them to not only get to the finals, but then dealing with the injuries that they were dealing with, to actually push it to six games, it sucks that they ran out of gas. Um, and, and it sucks that they couldn't be fully healthy because I think it would have been a different series. And maybe they really do have a chance to to knock the Lakers off. But, man, just... Uh, just a hell of a run and hats off to that team. Hats off to Eric Spolstra, who I thought established himself as the best coach in the NBA throughout the postseason. He's a savant. He's an absolute master class. And this was, you know, look, it's not like this concept of heat culture is like a new thing. Players talked about it, you know, even when we had the big three era. I just don't think anybody really wanted to hear it back then because nobody was going to credit heat culture for propelling that team to four straight finals, you know, in two championships when they had three hall of famers playing essentially at the peak of their powers. And I think this season really was the true showcase of all that stuff, all that, you know, the the organizational principles that the heat have kind of always liked to talk up about themselves. It's like, I think this season we kind of got to see the real value in that and see what it looks like and got to really see and appreciate Spolstra's ingenuity. And I also just like got to really see and appreciate Jimmy Butler. And uh, I, I just think that they deserve a whole lot of credit. And I know, I know, you know, the idea of a moral victory is completely antithetical to everything that that organization stands for. But as far as moral victories go, this was one of the best.
1: Yeah. And I think the way, you know, that franchise conducts itself, you know, between Pat Riley, Eric Spolster, and even Jimmy Butler himself, I think they'll walk out with their heads held high, deservedly so. But I also think that, yeah, they, they're they coming out of this, you know, without a shred of feeling like this was a moral victory. You know, I, Jimmy Butler knows how long it took him just to get here. I don't think he takes for granted that it's just going to happen again next year or two years from now. Now, Having said that, the Heat are in very good position because you know Jimmy Butler is a 16 game player. So even if even if he you know maybe loses a step over the next couple of years because he is on the wrong side of 30 now, like I I would still have faith in Jimmy Butler being able to be an elite ball dominant superstar in the playoffs for at least the next couple of years. They've got him under contract. Bam Adebayo is you know the prototype of a modern big man and is only going to get better. He already. He got better over the course of the season and then got better again when players came back in the bubble. You know, they have those guys locked up or they will have Bam locked up soon enough and they'll be able to have those guys locked up. And as we've mentioned many times, have Max pace in 2021 when more than just Giannis is free. Like a lot of game changing type players will be free agents. You know, they'll have Pat Riley and Spolstra and the lure of South Beach behind them. Like the the heat. Um, as much as they were built to win now, are also very much built to win in the future. So Jimmy Butler may very well be back on this stage a year from now, two years from now, three years from now. But I also think that between him and Riley and Spolstra, they know how unique these opportunities are at the same time. So I don't think they'll be able to take any moral victories out of it. Even though, like I said, though, they're going to have their heads held high. But it's just, uh, I, I hate to say it again for like the 30th time in the last two years, but sometimes you realize years later that your first chance to win was actually your best chance to win and that's probably a shitty feeling when that realization sinks in and i hope for jimmy butler's sake that's not the case here
0: i think that's just why i've sucked so much they didn't actually get to take their best shot and you know bam obviously came back for games four five and six but he didn't look like himself like he wasn't really getting off the ground he didn't have the same kind of explosiveness he was struggling to hold onto the ball, like his touch was kind of gone. And then Dragic came off the bench for kind of a token, you know, 20-minute stint, but wasn't really able to make a big impact in this one. Yeah, it just – it's really disappointing, you know, after how hard they worked to get there, that they were depleted. And at the same time, look, if if they were going to lose this series anyway, which I'm not positive they were going to, but in a weird way – I do think there's a silver lining in that we got to see Jimmy Butler play hero ball in a way that, you know, I I don't know that a lot of people thought that he actually had that in him to do it not once, but twice, go toe to toe with LeBron and pull the heat to a couple of monster wins in the finals. And in, in, in a way, I think there's sort of an upside, which is that he actually got the opportunity to do that and show people what he was capable of. But you're you're right in that, you know, the Heat are extraordinarily well set up for the future, both because Bam is, what, 22 and looks to me like a guy who's going to be in the defensive player of the year conversation for like a decade. And Tyler Hero, I think, has a really bright future ahead of him. and He's 20. Butler is on the wrong side of 30, but certainly seems like he has a few years left of high quality play in him. And they're they're going to have Max Capskate potentially. Duncan 20, Robinson. 20, and yeah, Duncan Robinson ideally will be around. And if they do manage to pull in, you know, another superstar, and especially if it's a guy like Giannis, having a guy like Duncan Robinson to play off of him is that's pretty nice. Um, and the thing, you know, you mentioned about Butler being ball dominant. I actually think what's great about Jimmy Butler is he's not really ball dominant, or at least doesn't need to be. I know we saw him play that role at points in the finals because he really needed to, but he's actually a fantastic off ball player, especially given that he's not a shooter. Like for somebody who doesn't really provide a whole lot of gravity as a spot-up threat, he is so good at playing off the ball. Just like, you know, his cutting ability, how well he screens, the fact that he just like doesn't stop moving, his ability to get seals on guys deep in the post, like, he is a, a super effective off-ball player. So if another guy does come in in the future and essentially bump Jimmy into more of a complementary role, I think that's a role that he's also going to be able to play exceptionally well. And you know, he'll always have this run, I think, to validate him and show what he can do as a number one option. So
1: yeah, and I, you know, I that's think
0: something that he, that he can take with him, you know.
1: For sure. I mean, he he is a fantastic off-ball player. Um, I I think, you know, when I talk about ball dominant, what I meant too is that he's, you know, he's proven like he's capable of doing it, right? So if you have Jimmy Butler in a playoff series, you know you at least have a guy that is capable of being like the elite ball dominant type of perimeter player, scorer, playmaker that could be the best player um, on a championship level team or a finals level team, right? And I think... That's a big proving ground. You know, the fact that we are now certain he can be that guy. But one thing I wanted to touch on too, before we go, because obviously, you know, we talked about LeBron and AD, and now we've talked about the heat and and their future. One thing I did want to touch on is the Lakers supporting cast, which look, I think at times, both of us mocked them this season. and, And even like going back to last July, right? They got, the Lakers got clowned a little bit for, you know waiting around for Kawhi in vain even though it was the obvious right choice to wait around to see if you could get Kawhi but you know they ended up missing out on the opportunity to add some pieces and they cobbled together this supporting cast that you know under the circumstances was fine but really when you looked at it on paper you're thinking like man uh, like you know as you mentioned coming into the finals the Lakers probably had the two best players in the finals but you could say like the third to tenth best players in this series should have been Miami Heat players because of how we viewed that supporting cast. And that's why in, in the piece I wrote Sunday night as kind of like an accompanying piece to the Lakers winning the championship, while I admitted that having LeBron and Anthony Davis and having an unstoppable force like LeBron with a teammate as good as Anthony Davis made them partly inevitable and should have made people realize that maybe this is always where this season was going. I also thought that the way the supporting cast came together also kind of made them like a part underdog story, not in the truest sense, because obviously when you have LeBron and Anthony Davis and you're the Lakers, you're not an underdog, but I do think there were like elements of an underdog story there. When you just look at that supporting cast, right? Like whether it's the fact that as we mentioned, Contavious Caldwell Pope was the NBA's biggest punchline for the first month of the season, Contavious Caldwell Pope being as trash as he was the first month of the season and still getting the playing time he was getting, And the contract he had gotten was literally what sparked the first video in in the score's now regular YouTube series unfiltered because I just was like, I want to riff on this because it's like so ridiculous. Like that's how bad Contavious Caldwell Pope was and how much flack he got early in the season. And then over the course of the year and in the finals too, he established himself as like probably their most consistent number three guy, maybe on both ends of the court to be honest with you. Like... We talked earlier in this series, or maybe last series, about how at this point, he's just like the better all-around player than Danny Green, which is kind of nuts. So there's that. Um, there's the fact that going into the season, everyone looked at it as like, okay, well, like at least in Danny Green and Avery Bradley, like those are like very dependable 3-and-D guys. And then Green, I thought, struggled on both ends of the court at times during this postseason, although I thought he was pretty good the last couple of games and overall was pretty good in the finals. But I thought
0: he was really good defensively, actually. Like, he he did a really good job, I think, navigating screens. And, you know, his defense, to me, it was not quite at his peak level, but it was still definitely up to snuff.
1: Yeah, so, but, you know, you go into the season thinking, like, between him and Avery Bradley, like, those are the two of the supporting cast guys that you can count on. Like, that's it. And everyone else is kind of a wild card. And then, you know, Green's shot um, fails him at times throughout the playoff run. Avery Bradley's not even there because he very understandably opted out of the bubble and you're left having to rely on guys like kcp you know um dwight howard who was very much a reclamation project for this team signed a non-guaranteed contract and you know i don't think either of us are the biggest dwight fans but he was a positive contributor and played 69 of 71 games for them and was a pretty important part of their third ranked defense too right and and having them be as good as they were when they went with those jumble lineups and him and ad together you know he accepted the workman like role that the lakers had planned for him and you know some of that was probably easier to do when he was on a non-guaranteed contract but then to his credit you know works himself to a point where he ends up starting seven of the final eight games in their championship run rondo you know i, I don't think we need to speak more about him but again like We do
0: actually, because he was fucking insane.
1: Okay, but again, like this is part of what I'm saying, right? Where there's like an element of an underdog, like there's the inevitable part of this Lakers team. And then there's this like almost underdog slash overachieving part, right? Where a guy like Ronda, who again, after looking completely washed and then some in the regular season, you know, misses the first chunk of the playoffs, comes back for 15 or 16 games in the playoffs. And I'd say in like 12 or 13 of those games, was a net positive you know i'm not i'm not in terms of his plus minus but in terms of what he actually gave them you know whether it was the way defensively he changed the identity of that series against houston right um against denver and miami i thought his playmaking and his overall basketball iq on the offensive end helped lebron and the lakers pick apart um two good teams in denver and miami he shot 40 percent from deep during the playoffs which is just like what rondo you know, and and like the list goes on and on. Marquise Morris, who I thought for the most part was pretty awful as a Laker, and then ends up with a playoff effective field goal percentage of like sixty one point something. Like he made big shots for them almost all the way through throughout the playoffs, other than the horrible mistake he made at the end of game five. And uh Alex Caruso, we liked his game, but for the most part, like to a lot of casuals, the guy was just a meme, right? That didn't look like a ball player, and everyone makes fun of his hairline or whatever. And it's like, yo, Alex Caruso proved that he's a pretty damn good role player and you know his shot isn't always there but a great defensive player really smart off ball player has earned lebron's trust i mentioned earlier in this playoff run like caruso's the kind of guy that's going to be a good team role player for like the next decade you know and by the way got a start in the championship pitching game frank vogel wasn't even the first choice to be this team's head coach and ends up pretty masterfully guiding the league's glitziest franchise steers them through a pretty dominant playoff run i thought for the most part pushed all the right buttons during the playoffs made some nice adjustments i just i i can go on and on but when you look at the the non-lebron ad faction of this lakers team it there is a bit of an underdog story there were at least a, a bit of overachieving that went on there right and i hope that even though i know it will get lost Um, because of the inevitability that comes with having players as good as LeBron James and Anthony Davis, I hope it doesn't get completely lost, because there are some good stories there.
0: I I picked them to lose in the conference finals, so who am I to say they didn't overachieve, right? (laughs) (laughs) I didn't expect them to be this good. I didn't. And I, I will say, you know, all due respect to KCP, who I totally agree was great in the playoffs and especially in the finals like that is one of the worst third best players that you will ever find on a championship team. And I think, you know, I go back to what Frank Vogel said when I think it was something about like him basically saying that the team had a big three, which was LeBron AD and their defense. And that is really what it came down to. And, And that's the thing that surprised me most about this team and the area where I think they overachieved the most because I came into this year thinking like they were going to be elite at the offensive end, like possibly the best offensive team in the league, simply because of the power of LeBron and AD, how well they complemented each other. And then having, you know, a pretty nice cadre of shooters around them that was just going to make that offense virtually unstoppable. And in the end, I think when the team kind of did show warps, it was at the offensive end that they struggled. And really, like the defense was consistently fantastic from start to finish and a huge part of that had to do with LeBron buying in and being a defensive force you know throughout the regular season and obviously through the playoffs and AD you know he was always a spectacular defender but to me this was his best defensive season and then you know the guys around them honestly just like playing their roles within that system to absolute perfection whether that was Avery Bradley when he was playing or Danny Green, or KCP. Caruso, I thought, really impressed me with his defense, and then Rondo in the playoffs, able to kick it up a notch and actually be a positive contributor at that end when I thought that those days for him were long gone. And it's just like the way that all of those guys played together at the defensive end. Like they, outside of maybe the Raptors, I think they rotated better than any team in the league, and that allowed them, I mean, you saw especially in that Houston series when it's just like They're sending hard double teams at Harden, whether or not there was a screen there. And their ability to just, you know, rotate on the back end of those double teams and snuff out any advantages that the opposing team thought it was going to be able to generate by having a four on three. Like somehow they managed to move faster than the ball moved. And they did it on a string and without making mistakes. And, you know, they did it while having one of the best rim protectors in the league. Maybe the best. Uh, There on the back end. And um, yeah, I I think they all all deserve a ton of credit. Vogel, especially, I think, for helping to craft that defense. And LeBron, certainly for setting the tone by buying in an AD for being the anchor that made it all work. Uh, That that was what made this team as good as it was. And for anything that we can say about it being, you know, a two player team and how that group of role players is (laughs) not doing anything without two seminal superstars like LeBron and AD leading that squad. uh, I still think they deserve a ton of credit for how hard they played and how well they defended all year.
1: Yep. The last thing I'll say is that I think it seems like a lot of people think that this Lakers team is maybe not going to be the traditional Lakers team that goes on like a multi-year run because of LeBron's age and some contract status, whatever the case may be, the way other super teams may be forming. I would caution people that one, have you still not learned to not doubt LeBron James, like, or to assume father time is just around the corner with LeBron James. Like, yeah, sooner or later it's going to happen, but doubt LeBron James at your own peril is the first thing I'd say. Um, You know, if you think like, because of his age, he's only got maybe like one or two years left of contention. I'd, I'd say maybe pump the brakes there. That's one. Two, You know, a lot of people like aren't talking about the fact that there is a path for the Lakers to have maybe not max cap space, but pretty significant cap space while having LeBron and potentially AD under contract in 2021. Maybe they're not in the mix for like the top, top tier guys like the Giannis or Kawhis, but they're going to be able to probably add an impact player at some point over the next one or two years. The cap sheet's pretty clean. Outside of LeBron and and when they you know resign AD, assuming they resign AD this off season, wouldn't that be batshit crazy? Um, if they don't, but but yeah, so that's the only thing where I'd like caution maybe people that look at this. It's like okay, the Lakers got their seventeenth, but you know they they won't really have this like extended run of dominance again because of all these different factors. I'd let's say maybe pump the brakes there because I would not be shocked at all if this is just the beginning of another Lakers reign where like they're just the best team in basketball for like four of the next five years or something. Like there are tea leaves to be read where I think that's yeah, I mean, possible.
0: If they could um, if they can get like a Drew Holiday, you know, somebody somebody, somebody at that t- level. It? Yeah. Who's you know in twenty twenty I think I think Holiday's a free agent in twenty twenty one. And I think maybe that's the caliber of guy who's not gonna command a max but will be you know, potentially gettable and might have to take a haircut to sign with the Lakers, but might be willing to do it just given the opportunity that it will afford him to compete for a championship. Like, yeah, it's, it's definitely possible they can extend this window. And that's even if they need to extend the window, because like you said, LeBron could very well just continue to play at this level for another couple of years, another few years, however long it happens to be. Like, you can't, like, until he gives you a reason to doubt him, nothing's off the table. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, uh, he, is, he is the best player in the world until somebody comes and takes that belt from him.
1: Put it like this, I think for as long as he and Anthony Davis play together, however long that may be, I'm quite confident that this team, the one they just won a championship with, will be the worst LeBron, AD, Lakers team. Whatever. Yeah, like if, if LeBron and D are together four years in LA, I believe this will have been the fourth best team of the ones. Like I, I'm quite confident of that. So, I mean... Think, think about it. You, you even just kind of admitted it. They just won a championship with a supporting cast where Contavious Caldwell-Pope was the next best player, dude. They maybe needed as a bit of a stretch, but they very much welcomed somewhat sizable contributions from guys like Rajon Rondo and Dwight Howard in 2020. Yeah. Like, I, I think this will go down as the worst iteration of, like, the LeBron AD Lakers teams for as long as they play together.
0: Well, you know, it's contingent on health. Those guys are both really of course this year. And just as a team, I think they enjoyed really exceptional health this year. And I, I think it's reasonable to think maybe next year will be the year that is, like, the worst LeBron AD-led team because they don't actually really have a way to make the team better this off season outside of the trade route, which is, I don't who are they really offering up in a trade that's going to net them an impact right. player. I think once Green's salary comes off the books, that's when they'll have the maneuverability that they can, that allows them to actually improve the team meaningfully. And I guess, you know, at that point, they just hope that, that LeBron is not suffering too significant a drop off and again, he's given us no reason to think that that's coming anytime soon. So I don't know, man. It's, it's definitely possible. Uh, I think, you know, you look around the league and think about what the impediment to that is going to be. I mean, I still think the Clippers are going to be really good next year. Uh, the Nuggets are up and coming, the Mavs are up and coming. The Warriors are, are going to be back next year and could potentially be formidable if Clay Thompson is what he was before and Draymond can. Use the added motivation of a potentially competitive team to get him back close to where he was before. And whether they use that draft pick to draft a high-impact rookie or use it to trade for an impact player. There are a bunch of different scenarios in which the Warriors are back to being a juggernaut next year. But apart from that, man, I think the East, honestly, is where the biggest challenge might end up coming from. Although I still do like think pretty highly of the Clippers, so I'm not gonna like rule out their championship ch- chances next year. But like, I think the East is gonna be super interesting next year. Uh, I'm very interested to see what the Nets look like. I'm super interested to see what the Heat look like next year, and like, can they replicate the success? And like, are they closer to being the team that they were in the bubble, or are they closer to being the team they were before the bubble? Because that is a pretty significant difference. And Dragic is a free agent. And if he's not there, then that's a pretty significant hole to patch. You know, what can Hero do in his second year? How much better can Ban get? How much longer can Jimmy keep doing this? Like, I'm really interested to see what that team can do. And, you know, what the Raptors look like next year after the season that they had and can Siak can take another step. I mean, the Celtics, Jesus, man, the Celtics were really freaking good this year we're probably a better team on paper than the Heat, honestly, like probably should have won that conference final series and probably could have given the Lakers a pretty solid run for their money too. So a, a lot of talent in the Eastern conference. And um, yeah, I think it's wholly possible that the Lakers path to more championships in the next couple of years is going to face a spiffest test in the finals. Yep. Agreed. So I guess we can put a ribbon on this, this way. I think just an overall appreciation for what the NBA accomplished here is in order. And just in case I haven't fessed up to enough predictions or general takes I've had this year that have been wrong, I'll say this. I was very skeptical. I had a lot of doubts and questions coming into this. And I don't think that they were unreasonable doubts or concerns by any means. I think You know, as far as what was going on in the world and the allocation of resources and player safety and the safety of Disney staff, I think it was totally fair to question whether this was the right thing to be doing and whether it was a good idea to be playing basketball, you know, in the middle of a global pandemic. But I also said, you know, if the NBA was able to pull this off, that I would tip my cap to them. And man, three months inside the bubble, not a single case of COVID amongst the league's player pool amongst any of its coaching staffs. I know there, there were actually like some cases of COVID among the Disney staff who were working there. And I, I mean, I guess you'd say that's just kind of like an unavoidable fact of life, right? Like they're not inside this bubble. They're not insulated from what's going on outside of it. But I think as far as what the NBA could actually control, They did a perfect job and the amount of work obviously that went into that and everything it took in order to keep everybody safe. And, you know, for the players to have sacrificed what they did, you know, for them to have been apart from their family and friends and disconnected from the outside world. I think it's like, it was a huge challenge and you saw just like the raw emotion in a lot of players reactions to what was going on and the feeling that the messages they were putting on the courts and on the jerseys and talking about in their press runs really wasn't enough. And I think, you know, the players who went through that deserve a ton of credit and the product was fantastic. You know, I think a lot of the whatever concerns people might've had about the players being rusty And the lack of fans just killing the atmosphere and making the game virtually unwatchable. Like, none of that came to pass, man. Like, this was high-quality, intense, climactic basketball that gave us a ton of really, really memorable performances and memorable moments. Um, They finished the season, man. I didn't think they were going to do it, but they finished it.
1: Yeah, and, you know, the players used their power. And, um, you know, look, they... (laughs) They didn't end racism. They obviously weren't going to end racism by playing basketball in a bubble, but they did use their power to at least enact some positive change. You know, that um, 72 hour ish work stoppage, which is essentially what it was that I mentioned off the top, it resulted in what should amount to more Americans having access to vote. And, um, you know, that, that might not seem like a, the biggest accomplishment given the challenges facing the U S and the world right now, but that is something. And, and that was, you know, made possible by the players, uh, using the power in their hands and, and good on them. So, you know, hopefully that doesn't get lost. I don't think it will among all the basketball related things that happen in the bubble, yeah, look, it's not—it's um, definitely not a perfect league. They have their faults and their hypocrisies too. But I think I can speak for both of us when I say it's—you know—it's the best league. It's the best sports league in the world. It's the most entertaining. I think while some of those hypocrisies definitely exist and they should be held to task for them, I also definitely think it's the league that at least is trying to do something, <laughs> and hopefully that continues in the future and even on a bigger scale.
0: Yeah, most definitely. And I mean, look, we're going to be reconvening pretty soon to talk about the off season and um, we'll sift through all of this stuff and start to look ahead, but we don't actually know when there's going to be NBA basketball again. And we don't know what it's going to look like, whether it's going to have to be in a bubble still or whether, you know, the NBA is going to push back the start of next season to a point where they think that they're actually going to be able to get fans in arenas or at least let players, you know, play in their home markets. There's really so much that's still up in the air right now, uh, from the league's finances and what the salary cap is going to look like next year to, you know, just when the season is going to start, there's a ton of uncertainty. So, uh, I think we just have to kind of sit with this and savor it and be glad that we got to see a satisfying conclusion to this season because it's certainly seen for a long time that we weren't going to get that. So man, let me just say it's, it's been a pleasure covering this insane season with you. And uh, likewise,
1: man, it's been a wild ride together. It has.
0: And uh, I'm looking forward to the next one whenever it
1: should happen to be. Yes, sir. I'm sure uh, plenty of hot takes will be had. Plenty of clowns will be called out, <laughs> plenty of frauds will be exposed, and uh, I can't wait to do it all together again.
0: man. And uh, to all our listeners, I, I want to say a huge thank you for sticking with us through you know a long hiatus and a lot of uncertainty and uh, a pretty strange and unique and interesting bubble viewing experience. I'm probably going to take a little bit of time off to just decompress after all of this. Cash, I'm sure you at some point will be doing the same, but... Uh, We'll definitely be back sometime in the not-too-distant future to start to look ahead to the draft, free agency, and maybe somewhere further along the line next season. So, with that, we're going to sign off. For Joseph Picharo, I'm Joe Wolfe, on the Rock.